All right, uh, let me start the sermon today by telling you a true story that relates to our scriptures and to our theme today. In the tumultuous era of ancient Rome, one name stands out amongst all others, Augustus, the first emperor. There are many great men in history, and rarely do we remember those who supported them. However, by Augustus's side stood a man of unwavering loyalty, Marcus Agrippa. Agrippa is one of history's best examples of a truly loyal right-hand man. He was born in the lower class as a pleb outside of Rome, but his family was able to build some wealth and he had the fortune of being noticed and sent off to a more prestigious school. Uh, Augustus, the future emperor, and Agrippa, his loyal right-hand man, had become friends as young boys after meeting in school, and their fates were forever entwined. Both of their leadership journeys began when Rome was filled with civil strife and power struggles, and the tension of the times was palpable. Rome teetered on the precipice of chaos with shifting alliances. In the surprising turn of events after Caesar's death, Augustus was named in Caesar's will as an adopted son and given the vast majority of Caesar's fortune. This suddenly catapulted both of them to the top of Roman society. Agrippa's loyalty to Augustus was fierce. He supported Augustus as his chief general and trusted advisor through his rise to power, engaging in military campaigns and battles. Their collaboration was the stuff of legends. You could say it was the most inspiring bromance of the ages, uh, far more than Jimmy Fallon and Justin Timberlake. But things uh, came to a head during one of the most dangerous battles, the Battle of Actium in 31 BC. It was the naval battle against Mark Antony and Cleopatra's fleet, and it was a make-or-break moment for Rome. It would decide Rome's direction and finally settle the power struggles. Appointed by Augustus, it was Agrippa who commanded the fleet, but they were outnumbered and the odds seemed insurmountable. The future of Rome was in the hands of these men. Would they prevail? Let's pause the story there. I will give you the conclusion at the end of the sermon. And you might be wondering, why am I telling you a story about ancient Rome uh, on Sunday mornings at church? But rest assured, it relates to our passage and our focus for today. So we're in our series, uh, Being the Church. And this week, we will explore the idea of Christian followership. Christian followership. Essentially, what it means to be a willing, useful, and committed follower within the church. I believe this subject is greatly underserved. Some people may immediately be struck that they have heard nothing about this topic of followership. Uh, but an honest review of scripture will reveal the importance for us of developing a wholehearted attitude regarding followership. In the Old Testament, God honors Caleb, who was a loyal and unwavering man uh, for God's people to inherit the promised land. Many others gave up, 
but Caleb didn't. And God says in Numbers chapter 14, verse 24, that Caleb has followed me fully. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament says to Timothy, his training leader, he says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. For good reason, Christians often have emphasized the importance of leadership. Poor leadership affects everything, possibly resulting in various types of disasters. But on the flip side of the coin is the importance of followership. Poor followership also has a major impact. It too can be disastrous. Leadership, of course, is a very biblical idea. Peter refers to Jesus as leader and savior. God gives specific leadership positions in the church. Scripture mentions the one who leads. Leaders are called to share ministry responsibilities with the whole church. We also have promises to reign in God's kingdom as royal priests and judges and mayors. And those are all leadership roles, right? Leadership matters because groups of people are naturally fragile and dysfunctional. And God raises up individuals to bring focus, to bring clarity and order. Leaders are given to bring stability, to inspire courage and to foster unity amongst the community. And the absence of leadership is uh, not only chaotic, but therefore dangerous. It also uh, makes, you know, leadership makes important objectives uh, without good leadership, important objectives become impossible to reach. And the reason is that leaders organize people around central objectives. And uh, when leaders do this, they create a sense of shared identity and purpose amongst everyone. It is a real joy to live under good leadership. And to live under God's leadership is, of course, to live under the highest form of authority. All authority, of course, comes from God. And truth be told, God wants us all to be under authority. Regarding those in charge at the state level of authority, the Bible tells us that they are called to uphold standards of morality and also to repudiate evil. And this leadership principle to, of seeking the good and expelling what is evil, that extends to all levels and all types of leadership. Churches should especially understand this purpose and this principle behind leadership. Churches are the moral compass of society. Christian communities promote the common good. And we resist and push back on what is evil and what is wrong. Leadership, therefore, is such a gift uh, and a gift to be honored since it plays a vital role in fostering and creating more righteousness on earth. The Apostle Paul says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? 
Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. Now, one of the things uh, this is saying is that goodness cannot flourish if followers do not willingly subject themselves to authority. Specifically, it's talking about state authority in this instance. And this means we must dispel the myth that everything rises and falls on leadership. Right, That's a common mantra that has been repeated over and over in certain Christian circles that everything rises and falls on leadership. And it's almost right, but not quite. Yes, of course, leadership matters, and it matters greatly. But God's house requires many supporting pillars in order to stand strong. For example, Moses uh, heroically led the Hebrews out of Egypt. Yet that generation died in the wilderness because of their stubbornness. The followers failed. Even later on, when they had finally, uh, when they finally did inhabit the land, we're told of King Uzziah in Second Chronicles. Scripture says this: He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but the people still followed corrupt practices. If we don't learn to follow well, We undermine the divine purpose of leadership. Dysfunctional followers can, just like dysfunctional leaders, but dysfunctional followers can also spread disunity and division and confusion and even immorality like that example. Without the cooperation and humility of the people laying down individual agendas, then the collective group cannot effectively strive towards significant goals. The challenge of leadership is to help people see this. And as God's family, we've been given the greatest mission of all, to shine the gospel of grace to all people. So let us not be those who inhibit that mission through our own pride or our own disloyalty or our own disruption or disruptiveness. Just as leaders need to be held accountable and earn trust, very important, so too with followers. It might be hard to imagine, but there are some battles where just one soldier's independence and lack of followership can lead to the catastrophic defeat of everyone. And that reality is possible in ministry. Now, God in his wisdom does not expect us to blindly follow any leader. There are safeguards to this. So in Acts chapter 5 verse 29 The Apostle Peter says, we must obey God rather than men. And when leaders depart from God's moral standards, we must depart from those leaders. Our highest allegiance, of course, is to Jesus. Jesus is the good and great shepherd. We, as uh, God's people, as the community of God, we all bear responsibility not to subject ourselves to false leaders. It's not uncommon for some people in ministry, at any level or in any position, to draw followers to themselves in an act of rebellion against those whom God has established. And there's actually an example of this in the Old Testament that depicts this. And in this example, the elders of Israel rightly showed their loyalty to Moses, and then the rest of the people then were given the chance to reject the false authority And to follow Moses and the other elders. So in Numbers chapter 16, it says this. Then Moses rose and went to Dathan and Abiram 
and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. Like this passage, it's tempting to get disillusioned with leadership, to act in a rebellious way. And, but, but the crazy thing, actually, about human beings is that even when we get disillusioned about leadership, uh, we can still strangely crave an idealized and unrealistic version of leadership, uh, which is sort of what's happening in this passage. And we can even foolishly long for some of the worst types of leadership. Again, in Scripture, we see that ancient Israel rejected Samuel, the prophet of God, which was ultimately a rejection of God himself. And instead, they demanded a full monarchy with all the authoritarian tyranny that it would bring. In First Samuel, we uh, read this. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, the children of Israel were clearly blind to the dangers of this desire, but God allowed it in order to teach a lesson. And this is an example of slave followership rather than kingdom followership. Human beings often, we we have a desire for a hero to solve all of our problems. Uh, It says that the people wanted a king to fight their battles. And I think that is a clear desire for a savior, an all-powerful champion, a a fanciful knight in armor, and shining armor. Uh, And now because of this misguided desire, people may even defiantly refuse to obey, as it says of the people, refuse to obey the very leaders that God has already given. Because it's tempting to think that if only we had a different leader, a leader with more power or more prestige, a leader who can win every battle, that will solve every problem. That's what we need. We need a king, don't we? And this is not how God wants us to think or behave or talk. Because unless there is moral corruption in the leadership that God has provided, then godly followership means supporting God's choice. Even strangely, David, King David, wouldn't take the life of King Saul into his hands. Even though he had to disobey him, he wouldn't take his life into his hands because David was convinced that God had appointed Saul to be king, even though King King Saul was perpetuating great evil. And this is how... It works in the Bible, which means this is how it works in reality. Uh, And here here is the principle uh, for all of us to understand. Shepherds take up leadership. Sheep take up followership. Shepherds, Shepherds take up leadership and sheep take up followership. This is not a particularly controversial statement. Jesus affirms uh, this idea in John chapter 10, verse 4. Jesus says that shepherds go before the sheep and that sheep follow the shepherds. The Apostle Paul puts it like this. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in, uh, in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. 
Shepherds have a consistent message. They have a pattern of coherent communication. And it is the sheep's job to tune into that frequency. The communication and direction from shepherds is, of course, patterned after Jesus. And if a shepherd or someone else, someone uh, trying to be a shepherd, deviates from the pattern of Jesus, then the sheep should sense that something's wrong here and then reject what is being said. The sheep have an important responsibility to assess the shepherd's instructions. That's what healthy followership looks like. While we can all grow leadership qualities and many will occupy various positions of leadership in in the church or outside the church in various organizations and uh, places, by nature, no matter where we are, there will always be more followers than leaders, right? It's logical, right? The higher up we go in any hierarchy, the fewer the opportunities there will be to lead. It's just an unavoidable thing. But even at the apex of leadership, Even at the very highest roles that people can attain, no one is without some form of oversight and accountability. And when we understand this, because ultimately God's above everyone, we understand that. When we understand this, we understand that all people live in service to others. It is therefore good and honorable, a good and honorable thing to take on important responsibilities and important roles. Because it means we're living in service to others. Jesus said, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. See, wherever the master is, that's Jesus. That is where the servant must proactively go. That's us. To follow someone is to serve their purpose and to meet the needs that revolve around that purpose. Sheep don't lead shepherds. Shepherds lead sheep. Good shepherds delight their flock with good leadership. And willing sheep delight their shepherds with good followership. This is the dynamic, the vital dynamic, the healthy balance between followership and leadership. As a result of all this, a good follower approaches their role with a desire to be useful to their leader. This means followers don't give responsibilities and don't give tasks or work to their shepherds. Instead, they seek it and they they offer it. And I think this point is really greatly misunderstood in the church at large. You see, when God appoints a shepherd in a key role, he gives them a burden to follow. An important burden, a crucial mission. To fulfill that burden, God then gives those shepherds the skills the resources, and the followers to achieve that divine mission. And in this way, we become the body of Christ. We all start contributing towards the shared divine call that we've received. But we do it in a functional and in an appropriate way. And then those who don't have that kind of calling, or those who don't desire or aspire to a greater role like that, often find it a true joy to coalesce around somebody with that kind of calling. And, you know, I think it's true to say we all need shepherds. We all need leaders. God, in his grace, gives us leadership in order to create a shared sense of purpose and a shared identity. It is a joy to have leadership. Paul unapologetically 
writes to Timothy with uh, these expectations. In 2 Timothy, he says this, Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Uh, Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Now, for Timothy to go to Paul doesn't appear to be an option in Paul's mind. Uh, The timing was flexible, but the action was an expectation. And this is clear and unapologetic authority that Paul is expressing here. Paul states that others have abandoned him and now he needs more assistance. And he adds specific instructions. He says, get Mark. Apparently, Mark would be particularly useful to Paul. Paul also had sent Tychicus to Ephesus, which shows that Paul had interests uh, in needs beyond his own needs. So Paul wasn't a greedy leader. He wasn't just trying to build things to himself. He was sending as you know, sending people to other places as well, other needs as well. Yet he also certainly understood that his own call and the needs that, that orbited around that call, that they had an important purpose. And in light of this, Paul delegates some practical tasks to Timothy. Paul says he needs his cloak, his books, and his parchments. Now, a willing follower will not hear these requests from Paul as just mere suggestions or, well, that's one possible way of doing things. Instead, willing followership will understand the bigger purpose that this serves. Paul wants Timothy's help, and Mark will be particularly useful as well. Those two men understood that Paul's calling to reach the Gentiles was a big calling that required a big commitment. They made themselves available to serve it. With this in mind, let us turn the mirror on ourselves. Are we a help or a hindrance in ministry? Can we be led like Timothy and like Mark? Do we seek and accept ministry responsibilities? Do we understand the importance of supporting God's calling? You see, for Paul, with his books and his parchments, Paul can write more letters, essentially writing more scripture and therefore strengthening more churches and all generations of Christians to come, including us, right? Thank God that Timothy was such a willing supporter because the results of all this were amazing. Some of us are like Luke's. We've remained present and available when maybe nobody else did during the hardest times. Luke's are to be commended above all. Thank you to all the Luke's out there in the whole world, actually. If, however, we have failed to be useful, or if we were once useful in the past, let us become like Timothy and Mark. Perhaps we're not there yet, like Timothy and Mark. We're being requested. We're not there yet, but we're, we're willing to come. Um, let us position ourselves to be ready to receive the call to come. Let us respond to the call to be those who support ministry. 
bringing ourselves in line towards the common vision that we all share together. Let us all seek to honor the lines of leadership and the lines of followership that God has established. For us at Trinity, God has sent our church to Chicago to reach a fallen city full of a bunch of pesky Gentiles everywhere, but people whom God loves. So a lot of Jews as well, actually. Jews and Gentiles, all kind of people. Let's gather around the call. We serve a much bigger purpose. In the same way that Paul exercises authority, uh, the authors of Hebrews make it very clear that this authority is not limited to the apostles or to an apostle like Paul. Because we might be tempted to think that, well, Paul can say this kind of stuff because he was an apostle. You know, of course he could say that. But Scripture specifically tells sheep to be under their shepherds. All right. Scripture says this. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, direct talk of obedience and submission to human leaders may make some of us shudder. And this sentiment does not fit well with our, with our skeptical culture and with, our, you know, with a culture of independence, right? We have a strong culture of independence. And uh, sadly, authority has been abused. And so, you know, we can be rightly nervous about following types of authority or certain authority figures. And we all understand that any abuse of authority is always inexcusable. Actually, next Sunday, we'll look specifically at the nature of church authority because we need to learn to see this subject with a biblical lens. Uh, but let us not uh, miss the big point here, the point I'm trying to make here, that if we make the lives of our shepherds harder, everyone has somebody over them, I have people over me, if we make the, the lives of our, our shepherds harder, we will ultimately make our own lives harder. It is therefore to our own advantage to embrace followership. Good followership helps everybody. We should all seek, as far as it is moral and reasonable, to fully give ourselves to the needs and opportunities of our ministry together. Many people will have no issue with this. Many people will say, I get it. I'm all about it. Let's do it. Let's, let's go. Let's make it happen. But not everyone. Perhaps there's pushback. Perhaps some will think their preferences or desires, their voice outweighs other people's. Maybe we think to ourselves that, well, people should adopt our vision and our, our opinions. But that's not how this church thing works. Of course, we must we must all be open to things and willing to listen, hear each other out and open to corrections and being humble and accountable, all of that. But that does not mean that shepherds are on the congregation's leash. That's not the church of the New Testament. A lot of Christian ministries are tied up and become ineffective because those called to lead actually have the authority they need to lead taken away from them. And when that happens, it can lead to power struggles in the congregation and pastors are to work as under shepherds for Jesus, serving the mission Jesus has for his flock. And we have to trust the way that Jesus has designed and structured and the way he builds his church. To be effective ministry partners together, 
we all must bring our personal desires, our personal interests, and our personal callings in alignment with overall ministry objectives. If any of us have a heart for something in particular, we must be willing to share it, but also to submit it. We have to recognize that our interests, our personal interests, our personal passions, and our personal opinions may simply be something that God's put on our hearts, and it's not for the whole church. We have to learn to come to terms with that and really work at not taking that personally. Sometimes certain suggestions or ideas, while being very good and very honest, they may, unintentionally, but they may take away from other important things, or there simply may not be the funding or the volunteers for certain ideas. Perhaps the timing for certain things might simply be off, and this is something for the future. We need to wait on it. Our goal as supporters of and followers of Jesus, of Jesus's ministry, should be to support the church before we try to transform the church. Now, to be clear, followership in God's house does not mean subjugation. We still need to strive to towards being sheep shepherds. That was that was week one of this uh, being the church series, right? We're being sheep shepherds, where we are all caring for the flock together where we have ownership and we can all make some kind of impact, right? But it's as we grow in trust and grow in maturity that then we can cultivate those even more meaningful contributions. There are also times where our own followership may need to be tested. And we should be open to this, right? At the end of his earthly ministry, Jesus challenged Peter in this exact way. He challenged his followership. Jesus had already called Peter at the start of his ministry early on, yet Jesus called Peter again at the very end. In John chapter 21 verse 19, Jesus says to Peter, follow me. That may have been hard for Peter to hear it again. Is he questioning Peter's loyalty on Peter's commitment? If, like Peter, a second call comes to us, we need to humbly reevaluate our followership and test our own hearts and be willing to respond, yeah, Lord, I'm still willing. With that in mind, what became of history's greatest follower, one of history's greatest followers, Marcus Agrippa, during the Battle of Actium? And how does his life relate to our overall theme today and what we've been looking at in the scriptures? Well, against the odds, he led Augustus's fleet to a decisive victory, securing Rome's future and ushering in the beginning of the Roman Empire. The bond between Augustus and Agrippa was epic, and it really serves as a parable of followership. Not a perfect parable, but definitely some lessons of followership. It demonstrates that loyalty and support from those in second place towards those in first place can bring about dramatic outcomes and can change the very course of history. Even though he was loyal, he was not a yes man. Before the Battle of Actium, Augustus asked his friend and his general, Agrippa, if they should even go into battle, if he should even attempt to become emperor of Rome. Agrippa directly told him to not become emperor and instead to restore the Republic. Now, now this 
is a very shocking thing to say, but it seems that Agrippa respected the principles of decentralized power, and he himself did not seek glory. Augustus uh, went against his friend's counsel and did ultimately become emperor, uh, but they went ahead with the battle, and after winning uh, a war like this, Roman generals would typically have what's called a triumph. And in a triumph, they would go through the city, showing the spoils of war. And the population would line the streets and cheer, and there would be a massive feast. And uh, historically, a triumph was only ever awarded to a handful of men. And short of killing the head of a foreign tribe in single combat, which only I think only ever happened twice in Roman history, a triumph was the highest honor. Next to that, a triumph was the highest honor that anyone could receive in Rome. But Agrippa turned it down. He didn't want to outshine Augustus. He understood his role and essentially the supporting call of his life. At one point, Augustus was on his deathbed and the only person he trusted was Agrippa. So as a sign of transferring his authority, he gave his signet ring to Agrippa. Augustus, however, recovered and Agrippa returned the ring. Another sign, an incredible sign of loyalty. In 16 BC, Augustus conferred upon Agrippa a number of privileges which were almost equal to his own. And it speaks to the absolute trust they had in each other. With this power, Agrippa essentially became a second emperor in all but name. And after his military victories, Agrippa turned to more domestic matters in order to be of continued service. On behalf of Augustus, he took on a few roles, typically considered actually to be a step backwards. He became the water commissioner of Rome, and under his leadership, he repaired aqueducts and he fixed roads and put games on for citizens. Agrippa built many things, including the Pantheon Temple. He surveyed the entire Roman Empire which was eventually made into a marble map on the floor of one of the buildings in Rome. He famously said, I found Rome a city of brick and left it a city of marble. He displayed no jealousy towards Augustus. He never tried to exert control or take power. Augustus was the greatest emperor in Rome's history, most likely because he had the greatest right-hand man, in all of history. Together they shaped the greatest empire the world has ever known. And it's said today that the average man, on a fairly regular basis, often thinks of the Roman Empire. It's an inspiring history. And historians have said that Agrippa was number one at being number two. He understood followership, but he was also a leader in his own right. And on this topic, Woodrow Wilson said this, Loyalty means nothing unless it has at its heart the absolute principle of self-sacrifice. As Christians, when we learn to coalesce around those who are appointed by God towards a grand kingdom mission, and we've learned to foster unity towards that kingdom initiative, so much can be achieved. So much good can happen when we learn to become useful 
like Timothy and Mark. Agrippa, interestingly, became friends with King Herod in Judea. Herod respected him so much that he named his son Herod Agrippa. It was then Herod Agrippa's son, King Agrippa, who met the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 12, where Paul shares the gospel with him. It's a very interesting connection to the Bible. And that connection reminds us that there is one follower, actually, who outshines all others. And he outshines them by a long shot, and that's Jesus Christ. Jesus submitted his will to the Father's will. And he won the greatest battle of all time, the battle against evil on the cross, where he died in our place. He didn't seek his own glory. He sought to glorify the Father. Jesus perfectly followed God's voice and God's plan. He didn't demand praise. Instead, he served those around him. To be like Jesus is to become a follower like Jesus. Let's have the band come up as I read this final passage and as we begin to worship. Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11 says this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is Jesus's humility on the cross, transferring our sin onto himself that gives us hope and life and joy. Trust in Jesus today. Let us humble ourselves before the God of the universe and seek to truly follow his agenda and support the ministry that he has called us to here at Trinity. We can have faith that as we seek to be useful and as we continue to build trust, we can see more kingdom fruit than we could have possibly imagined. 